Um, you know, normally I don't like rebukes. When I woke up this morning, the furthest thing from my mind was, man, I would really like to get rebuked today. In fact, I can't think of a single day of my life I woke up saying, I'd really like to get rebuked. I hope somebody just kind of lays into me and straightens me out. That's what I am really looking for. I don't think that. I don't do that. You know what? See this woman up here. Front row. I know all of you were thinking, oh, did she rebuke you? No, that's not what I'm going to say here. Now, she has. That's a whole other sermon I can go. But no. But I love her. Uh, we have been married for 37 years. You know, we dated for three years prior to that. I mean, she's just a major part of my I love her. And because of that, I am so thankful that one time her father laid into her and rebuked her to the very core of her being. She was a child, and what he did and what he shouted at her caused her to just stop and just almost cave in. I am so thankful he did that. You know what? It hurt her feelings. It was really hard. She didn't like it. She couldn't believe it. This is her own father. And yet he shouted at her, Dad, stop now! And all she was doing was having fun. That's all she was doing. They were in North Carolina. It was a dry riverbed. And she's running from rocks to rocks and just running down. And she goes ahead of her dad. And he says, stop, Deb. Stop, Debbie. Stop. She didn't do it. You know why? She's having fun. Life's good. It's great. Until finally he unleashed. Daddy, stop right now! And comes up to her. And she was afraid. It's like, what's going to happen? You know what he did? He grabbed her hand. He goes, come here. We'll walk together. And he walked just a little few feet further where the dry riverbed dropped into a ravine. Mm. He said, you come here. Now you look over that, and she couldn't see the bottom. It went dark. I don't like rebukes. I love that rebuke. She's here today because of that rebuke. Last week, we talked about some challenging things, didn't we? There was some rebuke in that wasn't my idea Jesus had to go and say these things to the church of Thyatira. I just read it. I don't write it. Okay? The week before that, there was another rebuke about Pergamum. Pergamum was believing the wrong doctrine. And Jesus came in and rebuked it. Thyatira was, was rebuked for tolerating overt sin in the congregation. And he rebuked them. But you know what? In each of these situations, why did he do that? I want you to think of what happened with Deb here and how much her father, he rebuked because he was so afraid. He knew that the direction she was going was death. He knew that. And so you know what? Now's not the time to be sentimental. Now's not the time to go easy. Now's not the time to make a suggestion. You see, when the direction is death, the time is stop. 
and turn. That is what's called for. Nuances don't cut it. Full speed ahead, straight up front, is what's required. In a couple of, uh, in a few weeks, we're going to be studying uh, another church, Church of Philadelphia, that's a real, you know, encouraging, and, and you're going to see how Jesus just lifts and encourages that church up. Today, however, we're not going to study that church. Because before we get to that one, we need to look at the church at Sardis. Pergamum had false teaching. Sardis doesn't. Pergamum had a woman among them that was leading other people into immorality and, and compromising their faith. It was obvious. Sardis doesn't. So what is the deal? What is Jesus going to do? There's going to be a strong rebuke here. I don't understand. I understand for Pergamum. I understand it for Thyatira. But Sardis, I mean, what's the deal? Keep the analogy of Deb and her father. Keep the analogy of dead man walking. Right? Dead girl walking. That's what she was right there. Oh, she wasn't dead at that moment. But had she continued in that direction, the inevitable would have happened. And let's go over to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3. We're going to hear what the Spirit has to say to us. Verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches or to the church here in Staten Island. What's the situation? There's no one teaching false doctrine. There's no one living an outright immorality, just kind of in your face. And, you know, we're progressive, so we allow that thing to go on. So what is the deal here? The deal is this. They have a reputation for being alive, but they are dead. He says they're dead. Then the next thing he goes, strengthen what is about to die. Well, are they dead or are they about to die? We go back to that analogy. You hear it in movies, you know, at prison movies. When the prisoner's on the way to execution, dead man walking. What are they talking about? The guy's not dead. What are they talking about? The inevitability. There's nothing he can hope for. The direction he's going, there is no hope. There is nothing. So in a sense, they're dead, dead right then. We've gotten in trouble with our parents before, haven't we? We really did something, and we know we got caught, and we, you know what we think? I'm dead. I'm dead. Now, we're not dead in that sense, but we are without hope. The inevitable is going to happen. 
So no sense. I hope he gets different. No, you can't do that. Discipline's coming. And so what's the deal with Sardis here? He's walking among them. Is he walking among them because he just likes to rebuke? No, they are breaking his heart. Did Deb's father yell at her? Because I just like to yell at my child. She was breaking his heart. She was going to break more than that had she continued in that direction. So he did whatever it was going to take to stop her. And Jesus comes in and goes, wow, Sardis, you've got the reputation, but you're dead. I have not found your deeds complete. They have, they're a great start, and then they kind of go on cruise control, as if, well, we got the image down. I look like I ought to look like, but the substance is missing. Maybe at one time they had it, but they lost it. Ah, but there's a few who haven't. A few who haven't soiled their clothes. That's a metaphor for the fact a few who have not compromised. Have not just kind of given in and played the role. And Jesus always, always notices. He knows the whole story here. So, two questions. Question number one. What's the big deal? I mean, at least they're not teaching the teachings of Balaam like Pergamum. And at least they're not tolerating this Jezebel woman like Thyatira. So, Jesus, what is the big deal? Things could be a lot worse. But let's see what the big deal is. Let's go to, Revel- uh, to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23. One of the greatest dangers that anyone faces as a Christian every day. I know that this can be a danger, and that is that I could end up appearing the way that I should appear, but on the inside be entirely different. You know, it's amazing. The longer you go, you learn certain actions, certain appearances, certain things to say. You even know questions asked. They give an illusion that you're deeply spiritual. So how was your quiet time today? Hey, what are you learning in prayer, you know? Wow, I went and helped this person help that. And these are good. Don't let go of them. But I'm just talking about at some point what can happen, it can move to just appearance rather than real substance. You know, I had a, a, a moment this morning. I, I give my contribution sometime without even thinking. I, you know, I pledge a certain amount. I write the check. Boom. You know, and the brothers pray for it and we do it. I was writing my check this morning. Okay, let, uh, let me write out my contribution checks. I'm not doing it last minute. And I go and I ask myself, why are you writing? And I realize, you know what? This is supposed to be an act of worship. And I just brainlessly do it. So what I did is I said, okay, let me start thinking of everything I could do if I didn't give the church money. Let me think of vacations I could take. Let me think of different things I could... Let me think, if I didn't give this, here is how it would benefit. Look at all the stuff I could do. And I just wanted to see it. I wanted to see all the alternatives. I wanted to be shown all of the kingdoms of the world. Not that my contributions are going to buy a kingdom. But you, you understand what I'm saying. Because I want to know and say, yes, all of that I can do. But God, you are worth more than all of that. That's right. Therefore, this is an act of worship to you. There are times I'm ashamed to say I've sang 
songs, but I was thinking something else. Worship leaders are doing the best to lead us in worship, but sure, okay, what about, and then we got to do this, and we, but what if I forget something? You know what? I always forget something. So why should I be afraid of that? <laughs> I'm singing in the presence of God with you all. With you all. So, the appearance is easy, isn't it? The substance is different. In Matthew 23, it's interesting. When you read the, the, the Gospels, most of the time, you know, obviously, Jesus gets crucified. You think, now, how in the world can someone that preached love get crucified? Well, read the Gospels. You'll see it's not that difficult. <laughs> you know, you stand for what's right, you're going to get crucified, Okay. But the amazing thing about it is the people that seem to feel the full brunt and vent of his rebuke were always the religious ones. Mm. He never justified the irreligious, the, the adulterers, the uh, robbers, the thief liars and all that. He called them to repentance. But a lot of times they were going, okay, and coming. It was the religious folk that he had the most challenging time to. You know why? They had the appearance. They looked good. And they can always look at somebody else and say, man, at least I'm not doing this. Look at this person. They were never unfaithful. They were never lying. They were never robbing in an in overt sense. They were never doing this, that. That's the problem. They never, never, never. They weren't ever like God. But they had the appearance. And so that's what got him in trouble. He dared to call them on. He uses a word, hypocrite. We're all familiar with that. You know what the origin of that word was? Actor. It meant actor, originally. So earlier this month, you saw someone got an Oscar for best hypocrite in a movie. Others got Oscars for best supporting hypocrites. All right? I mean, technically, that's what the word meant way back then. So a hypocrite is what an actor. Somebody acting the way but not being mm. that way. Mm. How many of us love to eat plastic fruit? Mm. I mean, we see from man, that looks real. You take a bite into it, you got some little dental challenges now, right? Alright, we don't like that, but it looks so right. Matthew 23, why is Jesus so upset? Why is he like this, like Deb's dad was with her because he knows the end of this. He's trying to stop people. Don't take another step in this direction because here is what happens. And he tried to do it with the religious leaders. You can read the whole 23rd chapter of Matthew. He goes after the teachers of the law and the Pharisees that were appearance but not substance. But notice some of the things that he talks about. In verse 16, Woe to you blind guides. You say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. Which is greater, the gift on the altar or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it 
and by the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. What's the problem with appearance and no substance? You end up putting value in the material and the physical rather than in the spiritual. Mm. They, they said, wow, the gold is what's important. God says, no, it's the temple that's important, not the gold on it. Oh, the gift is what's important. No, it's the gift on the altar. It's the altar. It's the fact that it's consecrated to God. To them, it was all material. It was all physical. That's real value. And Jesus said, uh-uh, uh-uh. In reality, it is the spiritual that is of value. In John, the sixth chapter, Jesus lost most of his disciples. I wouldn't say lost them. They walked away from them. And they did it because he talked about the commitment that it was going to take. And the twelve remained with them. And of course he asked Peter, do you want to go at this time? Peter goes, Lord, to whom shall we go? <laughs> you alone have the words of eternal life. Lost it all. Picture that. Picture if Jesus was here talking to all of us. And all but, let's say, a handful just walked out. I can't do this. I don't want to do this anymore. You know what Jesus said? He says, the words I have spoken are spirit, and they are life. The words I have spoken are spirit. And that's what caused people to leave. They couldn't handle the spirit. They couldn't handle the relationship to God, the commitment to God. They liked being part of the new rabbi sect. Isn't this cool? He's the coolest thing. Look at this, man. He's coming. He's different. They liked that. Maybe they even liked church membership. Maybe, I don't know. But bottom line, when he talked about this is what is real, this is the commitment, they're gone. And what did he say? The words I've spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. Every command, every call he gives us, challenging, yes. Life-giving, absolutely. But we have to value the spiritual over the physical, and the material. He goes on. He says, verse 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guys, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. These guys, man, they were giving their tithes regularly. They were doing awesome. That's good. He said, don't let go of that. He goes, but what happened is the good things they were doing was used as a shield to keep them from doing the really essential things. Mm. I'll come. I'll have communion every, every Sunday. That's awesome. Do that, please. But what's the meaning of communion? What is the consecration that happens to you? The surrender that happens to your heart when you do it. And it causes you to live a certain way on Monday through Saturday. Alright? Do church. Do communion. But, what's the weightier things? Jesus said the most important commandment of all is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like Love our neighbor as ourselves. Our lives have to reflect that every day. That is the most important. Wow! We take communion every Sunday. We come to church. We do things that we need to do. I'm, again, don't let that go. 
But don't let good things become a barrier to the most important things. You end up dead man walking. You're heading in the wrong direction. All right, then he goes on. Uh, verse 25, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup, cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and the outside will be clean as well. Woe to you, teachers of law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our forefather, we, have not, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers. We could go on and on. This is challenging. This is hard. But guys, you have to understand, he's going to finish this entire dialogue weeping over Jerusalem. Saying, I've longed to gather you as a hen would her chicks. What elicited this type of response? Why is it that Jesus gets so strong and says these things? Go back to the analogy. We're running down a dry riverbed about to plunge into darkness. And he is going to do everything he can to stop us and be as strong as he can. It is love that causes that to happen. Hypocrisy, you go through everything we were reading there. Put all the emphasis on how you look, but don't deal with your heart. Mm. You can read your Bible and it'll bounce right off. You can throw out some prayers. You know, it's interesting. I've talked with uh, uh, husbands before. And 1 Peter 3, 7 says that we don't treat our wives with respect. God doesn't hear our prayers. I've had to talk with some guys before that are, quote, doing so many things right, but they're not treating their husbands right. Talk to wives before, same thing. Man, I read my Bible, I pray, I do, but he's a, it's like, wow, 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 wow. No, you cannot compartmentalize. We belong to God. Don't appear right. Don't go on reputation. What are you really like? This last thing that Jesus challenges them on is interesting. He says, you guys, you know, say that you would have stood up, you know, that you're not like your forefathers who killed the prophets. But you know what? He goes, you guys are exactly like them. You see, what happened is they thought they were safe with historical buffer. That's what I call it. Historical buffer is when I'll read about Jesus and Jeremiah and Isaiah and say, wow. I can't believe people didn't listen to him and to them. Look at that. Look at what they went through. Isn't that wrong? I mean, that is terrible. See, I can do that at a distance. But what Jesus is saying, what would you do if they were here right now? What would you do? Brothers, sisters, let me ask something. If someone comes along and you're not familiar with them or anything like that, They become part of our our small group or part of our church. 
Well, you know, and they come up and say something. The real issue is, is it right what they're saying? Is it right what they're doing? Sometimes we get our own ways challenged. We built up a nice little way of doing things. We like doing things a certain way. And also we've lost, is it the right way or the wrong way? We've allowed things to go so long, someone comes along into our small group and says, hey, I think we need to do this, I think we need to do that. All of a sudden they become the bad guy. What would happen if Jeremiah came into your small group? What would happen if Jesus, he is in your small group, but if he physically appeared? It's like, wow. Sardis had to wake up. Sardis couldn't go on reputation alone. Jesus is trying to get them to get their heart back into it. That's what the big deal is. Hypocrisy kills all of us. It kills all of us. You know, we, from time to time, we get notices about viruses and things happening in different parts of the world and all of the effort to contain. You know why? Because it kills people. And so you've got to stop it. You've got to get help. Hypocrisy does that. It kills Christians because it takes the heart out of them. They get used to appearing rather than dealing with themselves. It kills non-Christians because they're looking to see if anyone really believes this stuff. And they'd like to see somebody that really believes it and really lives that way. And you can tell they're passionate about it. It's not a casual belief and assent to intellectual facts. It's a way of life for them. And it's not because they're a minister or preacher. It's because they belong to Jesus Christ. That is why Jesus is so strong on this. Please, come on, wake up. So, first question is why? What's the big deal? Second question is, what are we going to do about it? Look what he says. He gives a lot of imperatives there, doesn't he? He says, wake up, strengthen what is about to die, remember what you heard and received, obey it, and repent. It's very, in one sense, very simple. Wake up. Take action now. There's certain things we need to think about and meditate on. Coming out of being dead spiritually is not one of those things. That's something that requires immediate attention. We can't go on reputation. We need to do something right now. Now, here's the thing. We've all been in places in our life where we're just kind of like, man, I'm, I'm struggling. I don't. I don't think I can do this. I talked with people recently, and, and I talked with one individual, and they said, I can't do this. I was explaining to them something that they should do. Being a Christian, they should do it to make things right. And they got so afraid and so upset. I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. And you know what? They're right. They can't do that. That's the good news. We don't have to look to ourselves to do it. God can do it. All He wants us to do is take a step. Do it. Take a step. Sometimes the things we're the most afraid of is because we haven't taken a step. So what happens? It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And we freak ourselves out. Whatever you're afraid of, rather than step backwards, step forward. Go right into it. First time you rode the roller coaster, you had some serious thoughts about that, right? But you know what you did? You took a step. You got in it. They locked that barn. There's not a crying thing you can do about it now, is there? 
You screamed your head off. You promised you'd never do it and all that. But you finished the ride. And you got back in line and did it again. And did it again. That which had terrified you, you took action, stepped right into it. And all of a sudden you found out, ain't so bad. Ain't so bad. Why? God is right there with you. Two things I want you to do. Number one, is while you're strengthening, remembering, obeying, and repenting there, I want you to realize what God wants you to do is start small. You may need to feel like, I need to overhaul my whole life. That could be very well be true. You may need to rebuild your entire faith and do a major overhaul. Okay, that's fine. Let me show you what Jesus said about, about that. Matthew 13. Verse 31, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree. So the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked through the door. Through all the dough. Jesus spoke these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. Mustard seed. Really tiny. I have a mustard seed. I carry a mustard seed in my body. You can't even see it. It's so tiny. I carry several of them. You know what Jesus says, kingdom of God? It's like a mustard seed. Start small and it spreads. It's like yeast. It's like leaven. Put a little bit of lump and it goes everywhere. That's talking about not only the effect of Christians and Christianity, but that's talking about everything dealing with the kingdom of God. A change in your life. Oh my goodness. How can I be a a courageous person? Take one small step of faith with God and let Him start expanding the courage there. How can I be a loving person? Take one step and get reconciled with your brother and sister. Say, I need to talk to you. I've got a funny feeling. It's a small step. It's hard, but what's going to happen? It's going to start growing. All of a sudden, you're going to become a loving person. It starts small. And that's something everyone can do. Jesus never calls on us to do something we cannot do. Wake up. Strengthen what is about to die. Remember what you received and heard. Remember your confession, Jesus is Lord. Obey it and repent. We were taught... To obey what Jesus said, not just the things he said. We need to get back with each other and help each other obey the things he said. That's a small step, isn't it? Michael comes back from uh, Buffalo, and uh, uh, one of the first things he does, he asks John, Hey, will you disciple me? Now, you know what? I know some people had some bad experiences with disciples. I want to say this in a very respectful way. So what? And I don't say that to minimize any hurt and pain. I hope you got things right with whoever did do things wrong with you. That needed to be done. And, and I'll, I can help. But you know what? That doesn't take away the fact that we all need to be taught to obey. And who better than someone that's already doing something? They turn around and help you. And you turn around and help the next person. And they turn around and help the next. And help the next. And help the next. And you know what happens? Community. God is building community, but there is helping each other become like Christ. That is what the church does and no other organization can do. 
great organizations for a lot of other things, but to be like Christ, this community that God is putting together, we've got to have that attitude. That's a small step. You know what? How many of us in here right now are consistently getting with someone we're open with, we confess things, they're praying for us and helping us to take one small step toward life, a good direction. How many of us? That's a small thing any of us can do. You need to overhaul your life? Great. you got time today. Take a step. What will that be? Now, where will you take that step? In some of these things? How about this? Paul says three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. Faith, being sure of what you hope for, certain of what you don't see. What's a step you can take out of faith? That you hope for something, you certainly don't see it, but you go ahead and do it anyway because Jesus said so. Do that today. What about hope? How do we define hope? You know what hope is? Hope is expectation. Not that things will go right. It is expectation of the intimacy with God. That's what hope is. Because there's scriptures like Romans 5 that talk about suffering and trials. And what's the inevitable result of that? When you're with God, hope. <laughs> I'm intimate with God. didn't matter. Paul, at the end of his life, 2 Timothy 4, said in my first defense, everyone deserted me. I'm by myself. All these years I've given and everyone deserts me. He goes, but the Lord stood at my side. What was his hope? Intimacy with God. Well, one day I want to go to heaven. What's the hope? Intimacy with God. See, hope starts right now. It's an expectation. I get to be intimate with God. He is my reward. That is what life is about. And I live forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Expectation of intimacy. You can do that now. Today. Take a step. Believe a promise here and act upon it. And expect the intimacy with God. And then love. We can all love. I don't feel like loving. A lot of times I don't feel like loving either. Okay? Sometimes I really have a hard time loving myself for some of the dumb things I've done. You know? And continue to do. I'd like to put a period, but I've got to put a comma after that. Uh, you know, it's like, it's, it's difficult. And then, then, I need to love you guys. And you need to love me. And guess what? There are times I'm not that lovable. And I hate to break it to you other times, you're not that lovable either, right? <laughs> We're all in this together. <laughs> I am so thankful for 1 Corinthians 13. That is not a marriage scripture. That's an everyday scripture. Every day. Love is feeling gushy. No! Love is when you're right around the right person and things just click. No! Love, what is love? Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not rude. It does not boast. It does not envy. It always protects, always hopes, always trusts. All of those things are things you can decide to do. And then feelings will follow. That's a step I can take. I can decide. I'm going to love a son here. I'll be patient and kind. I can do some patient and kind for a son today. What happens? I start becoming a loving. That seed starts, that leaven starts to go. 
That's what we can do about it. Take that step. The other thing we can do is make sure that we become an influencer for Christ and not an influenced by the compromise. Jesus said, few, few people in Sardis haven't soiled their clothes. They didn't compromise. They stayed true. You know what? You will find yourself in times, maybe in relationships, maybe in a group, maybe you feel like here. I hope not, but maybe. We need to talk about that then. But when you feel like, am I the only one that's trying to do certain things? I think I should be at things, activities of body. I think I should reach out. I think I should be, you know, grow my, I think I should have relationships or something. I think, you know, I mean, I'm doing, but maybe I'm just crazy. Maybe we don't need to do things like that. Maybe, well, and pretty soon you find yourself being influenced by compromise. You know who God wants you to be. You know that it doesn't matter. What do you need to be faithful? You don't need anything but God. Everything else is dessert. Sometimes people tell me, you know what, here's what I need for worship. I need these type of songs. Okay. You know what? No, you don't. I need for the service to be lively. No, you don't. I need the service to be meditative. No, you don't. I'm not just trying to be a jerk, even though it seems like it comes quite naturally as I'm speaking right here, but I'm not trying to, all right? Here's my point. God is. Jesus is at the right hand. He is the Lord Christ. I don't need it. You know what? We've sung some songs that quite frankly, not today, but sometimes we sing them. I don't like them. There are songs we sing. I'll go hum them throughout the week. There are other songs... I just didn't jump in front of a bus. I just, I've heard it so many, it just doesn't do anything for me, alright? It really doesn't. But you know what? It does something for people here, and while I'm sitting here, I'm not worshiping Sheridan, believe it or not. And you're not worshiping you. So we sing this song, Hassan may pick out a song that I'm thinking, mm, here come the fingernails on the chalkboard. I think that only because that's me. That's me, you see? But he may pick it out and it lifts his heart and your heart and makes you think about the grandeur of God. You know what? I can think of grandeur of God and sing. Paul and Silas sang while they were in prison. They didn't need anything. God is. Now, do we need to have great worship services? For God's sake. That's right. Not for our sake. We need to be excellent in all things for God's sake, not for our sake. I mean, our sake gets blessed because we're with God. But God doesn't have to please me. You don't have to please me. We're here to please the Father in heaven. Does that make sense? Yeah. And everything we do, Rob comes up with a great way to serve the community. I want us to be part of that, but I don't want us to go. People's misfortune and pain they go through is never going to be a badge of merit for us. I don't want any badge of merit because of someone's misfortune. We're going to go help people not because we're great, but because God looks down and says, I want to help them, and you are my hands and my feet. You go and do it. We do it to the glory of God, not to the glory of us. Right? 
Okay, that's a whole other sermon. We'll get to that one day too. But again, it brings us back. Let's not just have a reputation. Good people doing that. Let's really be that. And those of us, you know, you haven't compromised, you feel like some of your friends are, be the influencer. Love them. Help them. Don't get influenced. We all are in this together. God is building us into a community, into a holy temple, as Ephesians 2 says. Let's engage our hearts and our minds and our soul and our strength. And let's never be known by reputation. Let's be known by substance. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to Staten Island Church. We will close out here with some singing. Singers, why don't you guys come forward here? And uh, as we do that, uh, we will ask you to stand, get ready to sing, and afterwards, we'll be closed out in prayer. But hang around, encourage each other. Let's have a great time of fellowship. Let's not just be church going forward. Let's be Christians, people that love one another and encourage each other.